Welcome back to the Hard Parking Podcast. Of course, this is your host, Jay Finning. If this is your first time listening to this podcast, please go ahead and hit subscribe. Even if you don't know if you like it or not, I mean, you're already here. But you picked a hell of a time because in just a few minutes, I'm going to play for you an interview I did with the actor Joseph Gatt. But first, I want to tell you about my sponsors. And no, this is not an anchor spot. I've got to tell you about Talk Mobile. Talk Mobile is an innovator in retail and works with organizations like T-Mobile to operate stores throughout Arizona, Oklahoma, Kansas, and Louisiana. For more information and to jumpstart your career, please visit www.talkmobilenet.com, our title sponsor. Remember when you used to kind of look at people crazy when they'd wear their masks on? Like it'd just be the people from main China and then you would almost never see anybody else out with masks on and now in May of 2020 people look at you kind of weird if you don't have a mask on I don't always wear a mask I realized the other day that I was sitting on some P95 masks unopened P stands for particle N for N95 means non-oil but it's got to be pretty good but I've been sitting on it it's been in the garage sealed boy did I feel stupid No worries. My mother-in-law, she makes masks for the family. She made my grandson a mask, cute little mask. Made my daughter a mask, son a mask, made my wife a mask. My son, my daughter, and my grandson don't live with us. It's just me, my wife, and my mother-in-law. Didn't make me a mask. Made my wife two masks until I complained about it. Maybe she was saving the best for last, but I'm kind of looking around like, uh... Where the fuck is my mask? But now I have one. Then I had her sew like a little one auto patch on it to where it looks official. Although it's janky as fuck. Still, I go out without it sometimes, but I feel very irresponsible. It's at the fabric store. Is at Joanne Fabrics picking up some burlap to finish some acoustic treatment because I've rearranged my bedroom. Well, the office. So right now I'm sitting like eight feet away from where I used to sit. But I'm trying to make this acoustically sound. Don't want to waste too much more of your time. Like I said earlier, we're going to have Joseph Gatt coming right up. So Mr. Gatt, he's been in 59 movies, and they're ranging between, you know, big budget titles, multiple TV series. He's been in 2019's Dumbo, one of the main characters, actually, Star Trek Into Darkness. Uh, he played a, a um, frost giant in Thor in 2011. Some of you might know him from Game of Thrones. He played Thin Warg. So Thin Warg was a member of the Thin the cannibals, the super crazy ones that were wilder than the wildlings. He's the one that was kind of like Bran Stark. So Bran had the raven and he could see through the raven. Thin Warg, which was Joseph Gatt's character, had the owl. So he could take over and see through the owl's eyes. So he had a decent role for a few episodes. Done a lot of video game work. Worked on Skyrim for the last five years. He's been a recurring character in the video game God of War. Star Wars The Old Republic. He's been in TV shows ranging from Z Nation, Banshee. True Detective, even Stan Lee's Lucky Man. And we talked for quite a while. He shared some stories about his life. Uh, he does a lot of work with kids with alopecia and people with alopecia because he has alopecia, which is a rare, a rare condition where you lose all your hair. So coming up, Joseph Gatt. How's the reception? Reception good? Yeah, you sound good. Okay, good. You sound pretty good. I, I like this over voice over IP because sometimes voice over IP, you get kind of those weird little robotic sounds. Yeah. 
which I've, I've heard a lot. I've actually heard a lot of those on the professional shows that I listen to, so I feel a little better. But I'm like, hey, without all that studio shit, they're not even that good. Oh, no, absolutely. I've, I've seen a ton of, like, you know, pro, quote, unquote, professional podcasts, and they all have really terrible, like, broadcast quality and call-in audio quality and stuff. And I'm like, what What did that person say? What was that? Yeah. I mean, it happens all the time. It is what it is, you know. And, and the good ones work around it. They bail really quick. They, you know, they'll interrupt them and say, I'm sorry, your your phone line is terrible. We'll try to get you back on later or something like that, you know. But it's just when they just yeah. keep letting them go. Ready to get rolling? Yeah, let's go. Did you just yawn? <laughs> it sounded like you just yawned. It was a little yawn, yeah. It's been already been a long day. It's kind of crazy. And I'm just, <laughs> I've just like chilled out now. I'm laying back on the bed. I plugged the phone in and I'm expecting a couple of cats to join me at some point for the podcast. So you may hear some meowing at some point or purring. Okay. So that's not you. It's the, it's the pets. Okay. I, I'm not going to say one way or the other if it's, <laughs> me or if it's the cats, but you know. <laughs> All right. So we're joined by Mr. Joseph Gatt, a famous actor. Really cool car guy, really good person, even better person who has a really awesome history. We're going to kind of step through some of the stuff and um, hopefully he'll entertain some of these crazy questions I'm going to ask him. So I did a lot of, I mean, of course, I'm familiar with you. I know you have talked to you on the phone a couple of times. And actually, the last time we talked was 45 minutes over nothing. The first time we <laughs> talked was 45 minutes over nothing. I was actually sitting in the Walmart parking lot for 25 minutes. So we can wrap up the call because I didn't want to interrupt you because we're having a good conversation about cars and, and douchebags and putting bags on Ferraris and stuff. But welcome to the show. Thank you. Good to be here. Wait, we didn't talk about nothing that time. Didn't we have a long conversation <laughs> about um, about your car and about turning it into a model? Yeah, we did. Uh, I, I've told the story. I haven't told it too much because I don't want to bore the people who, who listen to this podcast. But in words, I think your response to that would be fuck them. But yeah, I had some ideas about the guy who had copied my car over in China or Japan or somewhere, and I could have had a cease and desist order from Harmony Gold, which nobody thought I had any sort of power to do anything, but it wasn't me that had the power, but I had the relationship to have it taken care of. But you reached out and said, hey, give me a call and we'll talk about it. And you know, I was kind of thinking, well, maybe I should put my name on it. And you said exactly what I was thinking and more. And so, yeah, I kind of attribute motivation by you to say, hey, just I can do it. And if they do it, they do it. And if they don't, then screw it. Yeah, because I, I kind of feel I've learned from experience, both with myself and situations with other friends, that in those kinds of situations, unless you're someone with a lot of time and money on your hands, you're never going to win a legal battle. Because a lot of the time, these people don't really care. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. And will just go ahead and do what they're going to do anyway. Because they're in another country, you cannot get to them, whatever. They're just going to do it. So my feeling is try and work with them. And I know that you had mentioned in the past about creating some kind of souvenir or toy of, of, or, or miniature of your car. And I'm like, wow, this is, a great, this is a great opportunity. Let's, you know, maybe he should just reach out to them and say, look, if you're going to do my car, let me help you make it more accurate. And yep. just put my name on it and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, like you said, they could have turned around and said, and said you know, F you. We're just going to do it anyway. We're going to do what we want to do. But luckily they didn't. They turned around and they were very amenable. And everybody is happy. Everybody got what they wanted. 
Yeah. And and all kudos to you for having the open mindset to, to think about that and not just sit there and think, these people are robbing me. They're stealing money from me. They're stealing my ideas, which a lot of people would do. They would dig their heels in and be very stubborn about it. But you had the open-mindedness. and You're like, you know what? What have I got to lose? Let me reach out to these people. Yeah, that was kind of the overwhelming response, you know, on Facebook with you know peers and strangers, just like, screw that, man. They're stealing money from you, and you're right. We're so people like us. We kind of think alike in a sense. It's like, well, hold on, hold on. Let's see what we can turn this into. You know, we don't have to kill this now because it's not about me as much as I know. There's some super fans out there of the car, and maybe this is an opportunity to for everybody to win, like you were just saying. Yeah, I mean, it's you, you created such an individual piece with your car. And already, I mean, the reason you did it is because you're a fan of the original work in the first place. Yep. And, you know, you and millions of other people and you turned your NSX into this. And so you kind of have two captive audiences who could possibly want to purchase that model. You know, you've got the captive audience of of the original machine, of the original product. Um, And it's a very, I mean, even I know the actual thing. I I couldn't remember the name of it, but I know, like, as soon as I saw your car, I thought, oh, that's based on that kind of manga character, that manga uh, uh, machine. And I looked it up and it was there and it was was easy to find. Yeah. So, you know, so you're selling it to a captive audience, two captive audiences. You got the car people. And then you've got the, the, the manga fans and stuff, and, and it's just, it worked out great. I mean, I don't know how many were sold in the end, but I just think it was really great that you, you went along with it and you just, and you did that. There ain't many people out there who have got models of their cars out going out. And I don't just mean generic models of their generic car. Right, right. Specific models of their specific car. Unless it's, <laughs> right. a, movie, unless it's a movie car or something, that just doesn't happen. And it's got your name on it. I mean, it's it's incredible. You know, kudos to you for that. Thank you, thank you. So enough about me. Let's talk a little bit about you. Just a little oh, bit. Jesus. Yeah, oh. yeah. You better. I hope you're ready for this because you know I've watched a lot of interviews. I've uh, read some shit online. This is a some this, shit being the appropriate word, right? <laughs> yeah, right. You uh, started off in musical theater, singer and dancer, Jesus Christ superstar in Saigon. What was that like? And how old were you? You know. Doing musical theater was the most fun ever. I absolutely loved the time I spent doing musical theater, and I still miss it to this day. It's the most amazing camaraderie that you have in a company, in a cast. I was and just about just, to say that, but it must have been the camaraderie. Yeah, that, that was one of the best things about it. And also there's something, and, and this is a thing that Mercy, my partner, and I talk about all the time. There are different kinds of actors, and I know that sounds like a very obvious statement, but there are different kinds of actors in the sense that there are actors that enjoy doing live theater, and there are some that just do not and don't care for it and don't ever want to do it. And the thing that an actor who enjoys live theater gets is impossible to explain and fathom to another actor who isn't interested in doing it. It's a very, very strange thing. It's like trying to explain a love of cars to someone who doesn't care less about cars. It's one of those things where if you have to explain it, it means that the person you're explaining it to is never going to get it. Mm. Because it's not explainable. 
there's a certain thing that's inside you and it's something that's historical as well. Like it's something that you build as you grow up through various memories and various experiences that makes you passionate about something. And with me, with musical theater or, or with doing live theater in general, because I'm British and, and the, the general stereotype is true that most British actors grow up learning in theater. You know, a lot of actors out here don't understand theater. They don't do theater. They don't care for it. It's all about film and television. That's what people want to do. That's what people want to do to get famous and rich and blah, blah, blah. And all those things that most of them will never be. But with theater, there's a certain rawness and a certain energy that can not be matched. Or at least you cannot get the same thing. There is nothing like standing in front of a live audience and doing something where if it goes wrong, nobody can say, okay, okay, cut. Let's just try it again. Reset the cameras. Okay, let's do it again. There is none of that. You're, if you're you vulnerable. wrong on stage, you're vulnerable. Yeah, you're, it's yep. the most vulnerable you can ever be as an yep. actor because if you get it wrong, you have to then find a way of fixing it live on stage. There's no cut cutting. There's no retakes. It's it's just you, maybe your fellow actors if if you're not on stage by yourself, and the audience, whether it be 99 people or 2,000 people or more. And you know I've had all of those scary moments as an actor where I've forgotten my lines, where you know I've not been in the right place at the right time, where sets have crashed and broken around me where we've been evacuated because of bomb scares or fires in the middle of performances, all of that stuff happens and you're an actor and you have to deal with that. It's the craziest thing. It's raw and it's live and it's, and then at the end of all of that, you get to go on stage and have your immediate reaction from the audience when they give you your applause and you can thank them immediately. And there's just something magical about that whole process and that immediacy. There's no waiting until the thing has to, until the premiere of the movie or the previews come out or, you know, that the series runs or whatever it is. It's right there and then. And if you get it right, you know, right there and then. And if you get it wrong, you know, right there and then. So a lot of actors, sometimes they'll go back to theater in between their big roles i mean have you have you ever gone back since then i have only been back once because the problem with los angeles living in la is the theater here is pretty much terrible and the only good theater is in a couple of the big main theaters like the kirk douglas or the Amundsen downtown and a couple of major theaters but the, the big problem with those is they actually get names in to play the major roles you know right um, so it's very difficult to book roles in those performances and those productions. But, and I simply, as a person who pays rent, buys my own food and all of the usual stuff that adults do, I cannot afford to make myself unavailable for acting work, as in film and television acting work, mm -hmm. to commit to doing a small theater production in LA. Because the thing is, once you commit to a theater production, you're committed to that thing for the six, eight, 10, 12 weeks that you're doing it. And in that whole period of time, you're lucky if you're earning $800 for the week. Right. Max. There's a significant you know, money difference. 
it's a big money difference. You're talking like, and again, $800 for the week is a minimum rate for the highest tier of theater. That's the minimum rate. And most people earn that doing the highest tier of theater that you yeah. can do. A lot of people like in these big, massive shows that you see at the Pantages and stuff, they're on around $1,000 a week doing these massive shows. And it's just not enough to live on. You know, when you're talking about a, a, a town where rents can be, even moderate rents can be around $3,000 a month in this town. And so to commit, unless you have a large savings account and you are lucky enough to be one of those real major A-lists where you've just gone from earning a million dollars in this movie, you know you have another movie coming up where they're paying you a million and a half or two million dollars, and you know you have a break for three or four months, then you can be like, ah, oh, okay. Right. I'm going to go and do yeah. a theater production in that little break because it's not taking you away. That's the other problem as well. See, while you're doing the theater production, it means that you're not available to do acting and tele you know, television and film work because you cannot then just bail on the theater production because it's not like they can just get someone else in to do it. Right. When you started and you started rehearsing, you're stuck. You're in that production. Mm -hmm. You owe it to the production, to the other actors, because if you cannot be there, none of them have a job. They cannot do what they need to do. So there are all of those reasons that I haven't done theater since I've been out here, except this one production, which I did in Canton, Missouri, at a university out there. And I was invited out there by a friend of mine. His family run the theater department, basically, at the Culver Stockton University in, 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 um, in Missouri. And every year they have their big final production with their students. They try and invite an established actor from the East or West Coast to go out there and be part of the production. And they invited me to go out there and play Stanley in, in The Streetcar Named Desire. And I did it. And it was the most incredible experience. That's awesome. It was, uh, I, it was, it was a truly amazing experience. I loved it. Those kids for a start were incredible. It was incredibly challenging, um, very stressful, but hugely rewarding. Right? I, it's one of the, my favorite, the favorite things I've done in the last 15 years since moving to the States. It was incredible, but that is the only time I've had a chance to actually uh, fulfill that theater bug. I've tried to do more theater, like I've tried to audition for, you know, musical theater productions that have been done on telly. Like you know how they've been producing these live musical theater performances, these these one-offs they did, Jesus Christ Superstar, and and they did a couple of others. I tried being involved in those, but unfortunately, they they were just looking for major names right. to fill the top slots in those. And it was kind of funny because, you know, like I wanted to read for Judas. I wanted to play Judas in the production. And, um, you know, I had done that in London's West End. And I figured, why wouldn't they want someone who'd done it in London's West End and is now an established actor here in the States? No, instead they went for that pop singer. I was kind of disappointed. I was like, <laughs> oh, okay. But anyway, it is what it is. It's like, you know, you audition for anything on television nothing to do with merit. It's, it's not a meritocracy, our industry. It's, it's all about social climbing, social media. It's all about what your last job was, how big a name you are, blah, 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 all the, all the right. stuff that all the Hollywood all, stuff, 
All the Hollywood stuff, exactly, exactly. And it's, it's um, you know, I complain about that, but I shouldn't because it's not like it's a secret and it never has been a secret. You know, you step into an industry where you know exactly what you're getting into and then you complain about those things that you were going to be there. It's kind of dumb. It just is what it is. It's yeah. like complaining when you get into a car that it's going to have wheels on it. You're like, well, yeah, you know that a car has wheels on it. I know, but why does it have to have wheels? Right. Right. Because it does, because it's a car. It's kind of like that, you know. Oh, you know, No, I get it's it. Just, it's, it's like my job when I have one because I've been off for three weeks. I can complain about the travel, but that's what I signed up to do is travel mm. back and forth every week on a plane and live in a hotel. So then other people who do what I do complain about it. I'm just looking at them like, you can just go home and work normal or you can yeah. get paid a little bit more and put up with this. This is what we do. This is what we sign up for. Yeah. It kind of reminds me of all the people that complain about living in California. Right. <laughs> and I'm like, wait a minute. You do realize there are 49 other states and you can move to any one of those. And most of the people that complain about living in California are transplants who've come to California. And then they complain about living in California for one reason or another without getting into politics. Right. <laughs> and, and, and I'm just like, I've said to their faces, I've said to various people who come here and like, damn, California and blah, blah, blah. And I, you do realize you don't have to live here. It's, yeah. it's like, I had that situation in London once. I was working in London and, and a friend of mine was South African. Well, a friend, an acquaintance. He was from South Africa. And it was at a point where there was a massive influx of South Africans coming to London. And this guy, whose name I won't mention to save him embarrassment, just always complained about how much he hated London and always talked about how he you know, just wants to come here and take his money and take it back home to South Africa to his family and stuff and blah, blah, blah. He's always complaining. And then one time we were at this bar with a bunch of people and I just stopped and I said, why don't you just shut the fuck up and go back to fucking South Africa if you hate it here so much? Or go to some other country. Because we don't appreciate you coming here. I mean, you're from there. You're born there. You went to school all there. Of your freaking money back to South Africa. I'm like, do that if you want to, but at least pretend you like being here. Right. Just pretend that you like being here before you you know, just bitch and complain constantly about it. It's like, why would you do that? Go to Germany, go to France, go to Spain. This is the EU. If you can come to the UK, you can go to any one of those countries. Go. Yeah. Because I tell you what, if you go to Spain or France or Germany and you complain as much as you do here, they will kick your ass out and say, go the fuck back home then. You know, I mean, I'm all for international travel. I'm all for open borders and people moving around. This is, we live in an international world. This is a global community. I kind of love that. But what I don't like are people who go to other countries and exploit just to take home. Yeah. Just to take back. Uh, it's, and there's too much of that going on right now. There is, there is too much of people going to other countries and trying to turn those countries into where they came from. For me, the beauty is that all the cultures and countries are different and you go to those other countries to experience different cultures different languages different ethnicities different traditions all of those things you know it's like you, you that's what the international that's what the global community is all about Indeed. it's not 
you know, we're not living in the dark ages where it's about going to another country and trying to turn that country into where you've come from and then getting upset with other people from that country trying to live by the country's laws and standards and regulations and traditions. And then, you know, you've come from another country and you don't like that. And you're like, well, what the fuck? Who, who are you to tell me how to live in my country? Yeah, if, I totally if you're get coming it. To, you know, it's, it's that weird thing. It's like, again, and I have to stress this because this is a very touchy subject for a lot of people. And it has to be, this isn't about xenophobia. This isn't about disliking people from other countries. Absolutely not. This is about everyone appreciating the differences in other cultures. Yeah, I agree. Um, it's about, like, for example, when I came to America, January 2005, I didn't come to America thinking, I hope America is exactly like England. <laughs> I came to America because America is America and not England. And when I stepped off that plane for the first time, I felt at home. And the other thing was, I know so many British people who are living here in America, and they still sound like they just got off the boat. Their accents haven't changed at all, and that's fine. I'm not saying people need to change their languages or their accents. But one of the first things I did was I went, in, I remember I went into a 7-Eleven. I remember this very, very clearly. Uh, firstly, I was surprised because the guy behind the counter was an Indian guy, Southeast Asian, you know, Indian. Right, right. I was like, oh, this feels like just being back home. It was cool. And then I went to the refrigerator and couldn't find the waters. And so I go to the guy in the front and I said, um, do you have any water? water? And he kind of looks at me strangely. <laughs> water. I'm like, water? You know, do you have any bottles of water? <laughs> and he kind of looks at me strangely. He's like, I, you know, just shrugged his soldiers, like, shoulders like I was literally speaking second, uh, a different language. And I kind of clicked in my head. I was like, do you have any water? He went, oh, water. And, and he said it in his in, in <laughs> accent as well, which was really weird. Not bad. He, he wasn't having, he didn't have an American accent. Yeah. He, he was Indian speaking. Oh, 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 water. Yes, of course. You know, in, in the back here, it, it was the weirdest thing. And right then I realized that there are two ways to move to another country. One is to move to another country, bringing everything with you that you've ever known and learned and the traditions and the way you, and, and your speech patterns and the way you pronounce words and all of that stuff. And to try and expect other people to accommodate you. You're put, you are moving to another country and you want everyone in that country to accommodate you. Number or two. Or you can move to that country and try and fit in. Mm. Try and assimilate yourself into that culture, into the way they speak, into their traditions, into the way they do things. I'm moving to America. So... I'm going to drive on the right-hand side of the road because that's what everyone else here does because that would be the easiest option as well. See, I could come to America and I could really, I could continue talking like I just got off the boat, like talking like this, like a fucking London and all that kind of thing. And nobody would have a fighting clue what I was talking about. I could get in my car and be really fucking confused that the steering wheel wasn't on the right side and I could get, on the road, driving completely the wrong side of the road, and I could be like, you know, fuck everyone. I'm driving on the right side of the road. I'm a fucking Brit. America wouldn't be here if it, if it weren't for the British. We came here first. Everyone should drive the way I drive. 
you know, I could have done that, but then that would have made my life really difficult over here. So here's what's going to happen then. Or here's what I would like to happen. When we do the Q&A later on, I want that accent. <laughs> and we're talking to Joseph All Gatt, right. actor, car guy, good guy. Let's ask you a little bit more um, about your acting before we move on to some other stuff. Yeah. So in your eyes, what was your first big break where you looked in the mirror and said, I've made it? What was your first big break where you just had a big grin on your face? Honestly, I never thought. Okay, here's the thing. I don't think I've had my big break in the traditional sense of the word yet. I've been very fortunate in that through my hard work, through my diligence, through my consistent push, through my persistence, all of that stuff, that I've worked. And I've worked, at least since moving to America, at least in the last 10 years, semi-consistently, much more consistently than a huge percentage of actors out there. And the thing about the UK is that even booking a job in theater, it's great and you're like excited and you have a great time, but you never, there's no such thing as making it. Yeah. Because theater pays so little, you're still living paycheck to paycheck. It's not like you ever get a big check and you're like, wow, this is what being a star is about. It just doesn't happen. It's, it's just another nine to five job. Just like doing any other nine to five job where you're living paycheck to paycheck. The only difference is we do it singing songs on a stage for an audience. That is literally the only difference. Um, well, how about I, I ask, uh, let me let me frame it in a different way because that's an excellent response. Um, it's an honest response. What was a time where you got a role and you were like, I can't believe this is happening? That's an easy one to answer. <laughs> okay. And it's kind of partially twofold. Firstly, was a very first studio picture here in 2005 when I worked on a movie called Pulse, which starred a whole bunch of people who are really famous right now, like Kristen Bell and Ian Somerhalder um, and various other people. And hanging out with Kristen Bell, you know, just hanging out with her and Ian, going to the movie theater with them, for me, was just like, wow. You know, and then hanging out with Jean-Claude Van Damme at the studio because he was shooting a movie at the same time. It was one of the weirdest things. And I was sitting there going, oh, okay, this is really cool. Right. But when it really hit me was working on Thor. You know, booking the job was great. But the moment I remember, it's about two weeks into the shoot, I'm standing at the back of the set at Manhattan Beach Studios. I'm in my full full makeup, and I suddenly hear this voice. It's like, Joe, Joe, um, I've just got someone I want to introduce you to. It's it's Kenneth Branagh who's coming up to me. Now you got to understand, Kenneth Branagh is already a major star to me, because as an English actor, we've grown up with Kenneth Branagh for years and years and years. He's like a massive household name in the UK. He's you know a huge deal. So the fact that I'm working with him is already amazing. Right. And so he comes up and says, Joe, 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 he puts his hand on my shoulder. And he's not a tall guy. He's quite small. He puts his hand up on my shoulder. Just got, I just got someone to, I, I, I want to introduce you to. Um, uh, 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 Tony, this is Joe. Joe, this is Tony. Mm-hmm. And I'm just standing there. And I, it, it, you've got to understand, I was kind of like not really knowing what was going on at sure. that moment. 
And this sort of like shorter, older guy was in front of me in a three-piece tweed suit and a hat. And he looks up at me and I look down at him and he, he, he and, and I'm just like, oh my God, it's Anthony Hopkins. <laughs> I was totally and utterly freaked. I literally looked down at this guy and I was like, Holy shit. Um, <laughs> Mr. Hopkins. Oh my God. It's like he, he, he totally just stopped me. He grabbed my hands and I'm wearing these frost giant gloves, big latex gloves. He grabs my hands. He takes my hands and he says, Oh no, dear fellow. It's Tony. It's Tony. And I looked at him. I was like, Tony, um, it's such a pleasure to meet you. He's it's, it's amazing, amazing pleasure to meet you, Joseph. Amazing pleasure to meet you. Um, isn't this wonderful? Isn't this incredible? Aren't we so lucky to be here? This is amazing. Wow. And I looked at him and I was like, okay. Good name, okay, this is. is cool. Yeah. And then we we actually cultivated quite a nice friendship throughout the rest of the um, uh, production because, you know, we, we would talk a lot about at being Brits moving to America and how it's affected us. He told me a lot of very private things about his life. And we drank tea together between takes and stuff. And we would, you know, I'd make tea for him and vice versa. And we would just stand there and just drink tea and talk and stuff. And he was just the loveliest, loveliest guy. And what was really funny was I came up to him at one, one of the first things I said in our second conversation, second meeting, which was later that day, I said, I just have to tell you, you know, Tony, that one of my favorite movies of yours is one that probably no one else has ever seen. And he looked at me and smiled and said, I think I know which one you're going to say. He said, it's the fastest Indian. And he went, oh my God, that's one of my favorite movies as well. I said, I'm so glad that you love that movie. And I told him that my girlfriend, Mercy, my partner, had not seen the movie. He said, I want you to make sure she sees the movie and I want you to tell me what she thought of the movie. And it was funny. It's just like, so I went home and told Mercy this. So we watched the movie together. She loved the movie. And I went back and told him, and, well, he came in, I was in makeup and, and, and getting makeup done. And he came in and he was like, so w- w- what did Mercy think of the movie? Did she like the movie? Did she, you know, I was like, uh, Tony, she absolutely loved the movie. She wants to know what your next recommendation is, you know, blah, blah, blah. So he recommended another movie and we watched that. So there was this weird kind of friendship that happened between Mercy and Tony as well, even though they had never met. Um, wow, that's which was super very, cool. very sweet. It was just a really, it was one of those magical moments because it was like Thor overall was a very difficult movie to work on um, on a political level without going into too many details. You know, it's it was the first big Marvel movie when Marvel took over and, you know, completely. And it was a huge thing. And there were, like, constantly producers. They were, like, about six or seven producers on set the whole time. You know, it was, it was kind of nuts. But this little weird bubble that we lived in, where me and Tony would be having these discussions and conversations the whole time, saved it. Just, it was magical. That was the time when I thought, wow, this is what it's all about. That's pretty damn cool. That was a great story. Which of the big movie studios is the most aggressive, in your opinion, on monitoring his talent, social media, talk show appearances, et cetera? Because you hear some stuff about Marvel. You hear some stuff about some of the other ones. Marvel. Uh, actually, I mean, Paramount were 
were very, very strict as well regarding, you know, when I was working on Star Trek. So I know they're aggressive like, on music. I know that. <laughs> yeah. They're, and they're very aggressive <laughs> on, on photos. And like, I couldn't even get a photo. Um, I couldn't get a, an actual, I couldn't get a press photo of my character from Marvel. And I couldn't get a press photo of my character from Paramount from Star Trek. I had to get it through nefarious back doors. Interesting. You know, they wouldn't, and I'm the actor that played the character and I couldn't get it. I couldn't get a photo. Um, It was, it was a very strange thing. And they're very, very strict about monitoring social media. Like everything you see social media wise that comes out from, you know, the actors or the directors or whatever, whether it be on a, you know, a a Star Wars, basically anything Disney related. Yeah. Is always something that's planned there's nothing that's off the cuff even the oops stuff isn't really oops oh god no 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 everything everything is planned everything there is there is no such thing as oops millions of dollars are are at stake sure and even the oopses are planned like we we had a like we had a moment when we were all told that leonard nimoy was coming on set on star trek right and this was a big secret because nobody knew he was going to be in this movie. And we didn't even know because we weren't even allowed to read the full script. Only five people were allowed to read the full script, five of the actors, and they were the main. And even they couldn't take the script away with them. They had to read it in the offices at the studio, and then they were only sent their pages. I've- we were only sent our pages, and, and we weren't properly allowed to read the full script. After the production started, we were allowed to go to the production, the production office and read the script there with supervision to make sure we weren't photographing the script. Utterly ridiculous, but it is what it is. Um, but anyway, we were told that Lenny Nimoy was going to be coming to set and that it was a big secret and nobody could reveal it or post anything on social media, blah, blah, blah. So 10 minutes later, or literally 10 minutes after Leonard Nimoy had finished shooting his scenes, Zoe Saldana posts a social media. I don't know if it was Instagram or Facebook or whatever it was. Had it been saying, Facebook. Just had a wonderful day today working with the real Spock Leonard Nimoy or whatever it was. I'm paraphrasing. I can't remember. Yeah. And I'm sitting there going, wait the hell a minute. So no one, a big warnings put out. And then one of the lead actors who's being paid $2 million to be here, how much she's being paid. I don't know. I'm just throwing numbers out there. Right. She's allowed to say what she wants. And then afterwards, I was just like, this shit is all planned. It's all of it is planned. Somebody said, JJ took her aside and said, okay, Zoe, we need you to post this, say this exactly how it is. We're going to take a picture of you with Leonard, blah, blah, blah. It's, it's, it's all planned. And the thing is, once you understand that, you look at all of that social media on a di- in a different way. Right, yeah. Um, you know, and the new Marvel movies coming out and you have people posting stuff leading up to the movie, whether it be, oh my God, what what's the name? Brie Larson. You know, posting all that stuff about how she's working out to be Captain Marvel. <laughs> it was almost laughable to me. Uh, but all of it is planned by the studio. Yeah, it. it's all green-lighted. Because they want people to think that Brie Larson is fit and in shape and is getting excited to play the role. So it's, yeah, it, everything's planned. Nothing is spontaneous. I mean, there's some stuff that's spontaneous. Right. But, it, but pretty much most of what you see, these big scoops, these big slip-ups or whatever, they, they're not slip-ups. 
I don't suppose is, it's it's all it's all done. Otherwise, people would be suing the shit out of everybody. Is the yeah. is there a ten movie contract that doesn't say you're necessarily going to be? I don't know if it's ten movies, six movies. It, it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be in that many, but they can call you back at any time, and you would need to make yourself available. I haven't personally got one of those, and I don't think. Generally, people don't have those kinds of contracts. I mean, at the most, I've heard of people having three movie contracts, but ten. Like the only thing I've heard of coming close to that are the Marvel contracts for the for the you know the big main A list actors. Yeah, where they'll book them, you know, whether it be Robert Downey Jr. or Chris Evans or whoever, where they will book them for. It's like we're going to contract you for six movies or however long it is. But generally, that's not the kind of thing that happens. You know, you, you'll get optioned for a sequel, maybe, or or for a three movie deal or something like you know, Chris Pine and the those actors the, for the Star Trek stuff. Yeah, Zach and 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 those people. I think they were contracted for three movies um, initially. But yeah, so generally, that's not really something that happens, and it's not necessarily a good thing either, because. If you get contracted for those movies, like if a studio contracts you, it means that you basically are screwed and you cannot. You're not available else. for anything. Yeah. Yeah, because you have to always be there, and they can literally call you at any time and say, "Right, we want you to do this. This is what you're going to do." And if the contract is there, you cannot even then negotiate the contract because it's already been negotiated. And if in that period of time you become a much bigger star, you're then stuck at the rate that they booked you at when you weren't such a big star. You know, it's all these weird things that you need to consider that a lot of people don't really think about. Like when you think about Chris Pine, for example, when he first booked Kirk on the first J.J. Star Trek, he was a name, but he wasn't really that massive a star. And obviously he has become a bigger star because of the movie. Now, the rate they booked him at for the first movie probably was comparable with who he was at the time. And they probably booked him on his three-movie deal based on that rate but then he goes away and three years later comes back and he's a much bigger name commanding three times that amount you know as a fee he's then screwed because he's stuck in a three movie deal at the base rate kind of thing you know it's it's the kind of thing that most people you know in a lot of jobs have to deal with again we're talking to joseph gat what's your cinematic dream scenario and what i mean by that is like you know no matter how cheesy it is you're playing the lead role in an intergalactic car race movie that you know eats unicorns for dessert like what is your, <laughs> what is your dream cinematic scenario that's a really great question and i do not have an appropriate answer for you simply because i like so many different genres of movie making and storytelling yeah you have range but I, I, I have so many different ideas of things I want to do. Like I want to be Han Solo. I want to be Indiana Jones. You know, it's funny you say that because I was going to ask that question too. You know, like what r- role have you fantasized about playing that somebody else may have already played? Like you just gave me an example, Indiana Jones and, you know, like yeah. Han Solo. I'll take anything that Harrison Ford has done. You know, he's played some of the greatest characters ever put on screen. You had a chance to meet him? I haven't, no, no, I've never met Harrison Ford and I would dearly love to. He is literally one of my favorite actors, period. Um, but there are so many, so sure. many inspirational yeah. actors. And, and I think that's, that's more, I think, what I look at when I look at 
where I want to be in my fantasy kind of scenario regarding, you know, as an actor. And it's not necessarily a particular role because there are so many great roles out there in so many different types of movies. I guess it's more looking at certain actors that I admire and the work that they've done and the position that they've put themselves into, whether it be Anthony Hopkins or Al Pacino or Harrison Ford or Paul Newman or, you know, all manner of different actors. But yeah, it'd be great to do, you know, some kind of space epic where I play the main bad guy. Because I'm not going to fool myself and think that I'm going to play the good guy. You playing a bad guy? guy. Get out of here. It's kind of stereotyped. I know, I know. You know, I would love to play a role. This is one of my fantasy roles. Here we go. And I don't know, I don't know what the genre is. I don't think the genre matters. No. But it's a role where initially when you see me, when you meet the character, you think I am the bad guy. You think I'm the anti-hero. You think I am the antagonist. And then a 180 happens and you find out that actually I'm the good guy. I'm the one that's going to protect the city. I'm the one that's protecting the girl. I'm the one that's protecting whatever. I'm the one that's trying to rescue, trying to save, trying to whatever, as opposed to, oh, he's a nasty person. What's he doing? Blah, blah, blah. Um, Because that will turn the stereotype on its head. And I like doing anything. And they're the kind of shows I like to watch. Things that turn a stereotype upside down. It's too easy to do the big, muscly, bald-headed guy is the bad guy. Okay, the skinny, pretty, blue-eyed, blonde guy is the good guy. Wow, there's a few stereotypes for you. It would be really nice to turn that on its head and have the pretty, blonde guy be the bad guy. Sure. And have me be actually the good guy. And have people cheering. And I kind of wanted to do that a little bit with Z Nation, with the character of the man. Now, I knew that the, the, I knew, I knew that the producers weren't going to make me the good guy, per se. But I was hoping to at least confuse people and have a situation where, well, he's up against the heroes, but is he actually a bad guy? Or is he just on a different path? Right. Kind of like a Venom character or some of the other characters that we've seen where we think they're bad guys and they're not, maybe they're just misunderstood. Yeah. Yeah. We're not out there to hurt people. We're just trying to do a job. We're just doing it differently to the other people. Yeah. You know, <laughs> those people interest me because they're more complicated. And I love the fact that, like, even when I played the albino from Banshee. It was fascinating because it was a character that really captured people's imaginations. Now, everybody knew, without a shadow of a doubt, I was the bad guy, obviously. But a lot of people also sympathized with him. I got tons of fan you know, comments and, and messages and stuff saying that, you know, even though the albino was the bad guy, we kind of sympathize with him because he's just doing what you need to do to survive in jail. In jail, and yeah. Blah, blah, blah. And all this kind of thing. And it was just really nice because I was like, okay, I don't want anyone to feel bad for the bad guy, but to understand that there are different sides to the same story. There are always different sides to the same story. And and some of the best bad guys are the ones that don't think they're bad. And the, <laughs> right. The common, the common saying is, exactly, they just misunderstood. They think they're doing the right thing, like whether it be the Joker or – you know, God, there are so many of them out there, you know, where they think you, you think they're the bad guy and they're established as a bad guy, but they actually think they're doing the right thing. 
And I don't mean somebody who's psychologically disturbed. I'm not talking about a sociopath. Right. Yeah, I get it. So I guess the Joker's kind of borderline. He's, that. <laughs> yeah, depending on which Joker you see, right? Because he was. I think yeah. people sympathize with with the latest iteration of Joker on the big screen in a sense where it's like, damn, man, you can only take so much. But I tell you what, it makes you think twice about people with, you know, mental illnesses and, and that guy that's talking to themselves on the corner. You know, you just, I don't know, it makes me think differently. Not that I ever really judge, but it's like, you better be careful who you're around and who you judge and who you cast away because you never know what they're going through and if they're right on the Absolutely. edge of snapping. And it could be that you know, homeless person on the corner talking to themselves, or it could be the person in the car next to you or yeah. whatever, you know, you, you, you just never know what could turn someone. It's like without, again, without getting political, you know, the gun folk always say, yeah, but good guys with guns, good guys with guns. You know, we need good guys with guns to stop the bad guys with guns. And I'm like, yeah, but the bad guys with guns were good guys with guns until they did the bad things with the guns. I said so, something about guns in my last normal episode. Cause I've done three Chicago bulls episodes and yeah. I, I walked the line. I walked the line. I mean, you've seen me on social media. I always walked the line and I covered all bases. And of course the hardcore pro gun people got pissed off and came after me. And I'm like, did you not listen to what I said? You can oh, no. have your stuff. I'm not, you there's, know. there's no listening. There's no listening no, to yeah. you because they only want to hear what the program people only want to hear one thing that you think everyone should be able to have guns, period. Yep. End of. There's no buts or anything. All people should have all guns. Period. And they shouldn't have to be any difficulty in buying them. They should be able to just walk in and buy a gun. Vending just machine. like they're buying a pack of MMs. You know, it's just like that's what the pro gun people want to hear. The majority of the program people right. want to hear. The majority, yeah. The very, very large majority. And then you've got the anti-gun people. And the anti-gun people, all they want to hear is, you want to take away all guns. That's all they want to hear. No buts. That you want to take away all guns. I'm like you. I walk the line. I confuse the fuck out of people. Because <laughs> I have a bunch of people who are anti-gun, who are friends. And I have a bunch of program people who are friends. And they're all confused by each other. And then they see me shooting and stuff. And my anti-gun people are like, why are you shooting? I thought you were against guns and, and, and pro-gun control and stuff. I said, ah, pro-gun control, not pro-takeaway guns. Right. They're different things, people. Big different, Big difference. And then my pro-gun people are like, but you're shooting and stuff. You must be a hypocrite because you post things about gun control. I mean, yes. Because I want people who carry guns to be safe with them. And I want people who don't carry guns to be safe from the people who do carry guns. So I'm interested in gun safety and gun control. I'm not trying to take away your guns. I just want you to know what the fuck you're doing with them when you're carrying them around the streets. Yeah. Or wherever you're carrying them. I um, said, I said, I think people should be able to get guns. Not quite sure you need an AK-47. But I think if you're buying your first gun, it absolutely should take longer than 15 minutes because it takes longer to get a criminal background check for your job than it does yep. to get a gun because my son bought a gun and it took him 15 minutes. And, of course, the pro-gun, you know, the anti-gun people didn't say anything. It's just a, the pro-gun people jumped down my throat about Second Amendment rights and all that kind of crap. Let's switch gears a little bit here to some <laughs> <laughs> 
some motivational stuff you were t- talking about earlier, like some of the things you looked up to, and it kind of made me think about people who look up to you. But I want to kind of go back to the beginning on something here. So you find out you're colorblind when you're younger. Is it the red and green common? Yes. Okay. And so you're around 12 years old when this happened, right? And then, you know, your medical condition kicked in the alopecia, which I learned stuff just reading up on it specifically to you. I knew about it before. I didn't know there were different kinds. How difficult was that? Because kids suck. Yes, pretty much. Or at least they did. <laughs> right. Yeah. Let's rephrase it. Yeah, kids can be cruel to other kids. Yes. Yes. Um, it was so, yeah. So I had the, I found out I was colorblind at 12. And that devastated me because all I ever wanted to do was become a pilot. And so that devastated me. And the theory is that, that the stress of that is what triggered the alopecia to start. A lot of times they say that, you know, alopecia is triggered by a stressful situation or okay. moment or whatever. Okay. So over the next two years, well, it was weird. It was like a year and a half where basically I lost half of my right eyebrow, literally half of my eyebrow fell out and I got a big patch on the side of my head huh. or it was a couple of patches. And then it turned into one really big patch about the, you know, about the diameter of a uh, tennis ball on sure. the side of my head that then developed into just all my hair falling out almost overnight by the time I was 14. And it was, it was incredibly tough because I was not at an easy school at that time. And people, like the other kids made it very clear how they felt about something they didn't understand. Right. Very clear. And I was already a child who was bullied and treated like shit at sure. school and by my, you know, by gangs in the area where I lived and stuff. So it just got worse. And I couldn't go to school. I had individual tuition, which meant going to a tuition center instead of going to school. And um, I completed my exams like that because I couldn't be around people because I was terrified. And you many start- things happened around that time. Okay. You know, you know, cutting a long story short, basically. And we don't have to get too deep into this and. It could be kind What's of a, that? I said we don't have to get too deep into this. I know it can be kind of a, a dark place. No, no, no. It's it's just I don't mind talking about it because what it does is it shows people that because many people go through ta- dark times when they're kids for, for lots of different reasons or even as adults. And what I like to say to people is because I, I didn't want to live when I was that age. I did not want to live. You know, I was ready to give it all up. Yeah. And. The, the, the thing is just to show people or demonstrate to people that it doesn't matter how dark things get, there's always another side. And there's always, a, there's always a path forward, even if you cannot see it right at that moment. And, you know, it was like, you know, there were times when I'd be sitting in my room and I'd be like, I, I just don't want to be here. I've had enough. So. You know, I got to a stage where I had, you know, I was like coming up to 15, 16. I'd got my exams, finished everything, and I didn't know what to do then. And I was playing soccer, semi-professional soccer. I was training with the Arsenal team. So you were pretty good and then. You are playing semi-pro. 
I was I was very good. Yeah, I played in goal. I was very good, and that was an option for the future for me. Um, but I went into the military. I didn't know why. I just you know because I was a cadet and thought I'd give it a try. And people were telling me you should do it, so I joined the Marine Reserves. And while I did that, I was studying at college, and or like literally after I got through Royal Marine training, um, I was at college and I was studying drama. And I auditioned for a theater school, which is where you go before drama school. It's like when you're still young. And I don't know why I did it, because I was doing a little bit of theater. And the teacher said to me, you're quite good at this. Why don't you try auditioning for a theater school? That was about it. I was like, okay. I don't know what that means or what it's going to do for me. You know, it might improve my confidence or something. So the combination of being at drama school, being in the Marines, toughened me up in two very different ways you know being in the marines toughened me up in a very obvious way physically mentally is that when you started pumping pumping iron it was a little bit after that i started lifting when i was about 19 okay um so i was in the marines from 17 through 21 and i started lifting about halfway through that and it was because I'd made a point to myself and I gave up on the soccer because I was kind of burnt out playing soccer. But I said to myself that I'm never going to let someone bully me again. So I took everything that the Marines taught me. I took the confidence they gained from drama school and I became the bully's bully. And I bullied people who were bullying me and bullying other people. And I took that to quite an extreme on certain situations. In, on certain t- at certain circumstances. Well, I'd imagine you had a lot of shit built up from being younger too. Yeah, but I did lots of things I shouldn't have done. I, I went a little bit overboard in in my treatment of certain individuals. Um, it seemed perfectly kosher at the time. Yeah, we live and I learn. Back on it, I was just like, ah, you kind of went a bit far <laughs> right. when you picked him up by the throat and then threw him down on the ground and smacked his head against that lamppost. That was a bit extreme. Um, but did he bully anybody else? I don't know. I know that that particular gang didn't show up in my neighborhood for quite a while afterwards. And that was a situation where I saw this gang in my neighborhood bullying this, you know, overweight kid who was on the ground and they were standing above him and they were kicking him and shouting at him and spitting on him. So I just ran up and I was just like, what the fuck are you guys doing? And they turned around and, you know, it was a mixed age group of kids and, I think the oldest kid was maybe 18, 19, and the youngest kid was like 13, 14. And I literally looked at every single one of them and said, well, if you carry on doing what you're doing, I'm going to kick the living shit out of every single one of you, starting with you. And I pointed at the biggest kid. And they were like, yeah, right, blah, blah, blah. So I woke up to him, get right in his face. said, if I see a single one of you in this neighborhood again, I am going to destroy every single one of you. So about two weeks later, um, I'm walking home and I see them all hanging out in between the apartment buildings. So I casually walk upstairs, get changed, put on my gym kit and go down to where they are. And I can see the biggest kid is sitting on a moped. And one of the things that they would do is terrorize That's menacing. the neighbors by running up and down the sidewalks on the moped, basically knocking people over. Right. So this kid is sitting on his moped and he's just sitting there. So I just sprint towards him. And before he knows what's happening, I've (laughs) leapt over the front of the moped and I've kicked him in the head 
and knocked him flying off the back of the moped. And he's just lying on the ground and he's like terrified. And I grab him and I throw him about six feet across the floor. Some other guy, one of the other kids starts shouting out. So I grab him by the throat, lifting up, up against this van, this SUV. And I start smacking his head against the side of the van. And his eyes are bulging because I'm literally choking him out. And the other guys are like, you're going to kill him, you're going to kill him. I said, that's the fucking point. And I'm just <laughs> smacking his head against this thing. And then I throw him down on the ground. And I go back to the big kid, pushing a couple of the other kids out of the way. Because some of the kids are quite, you know, about half my size. I'm not going to attack them. Right. And I grab the kid that's on the floor and I put my foot in his throat. And I, I basically told, I warned you. I warned you about coming back and he's in tears. He's just like, sorry, 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 sorry. I said, no, you're not. You're not sorry at all. This is the only thing you're sorry about. You're sorry about the fact that my boot is in your fucking throat. So sorry, we won't do it again. I said, I know you won't do it again. So I just kicked him real hard and I walked away and those kids never showed up in the neighborhood again. And what was really funny was as I was walking away, I was kind of afraid I may have gone a bit far and I turned around and I saw a couple of curtains twitching in a couple of the apartment buildings. Oh, snap. And one of them, and one of them moved out the way and there was this older lady and she looked at me and she just smiled and gave me a big thumbs up. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. As I walked away. Um, so that told me that I didn't go quite too far. Maybe. Um, at least I didn't scare the old lady. Um, but yeah, so, um, I, I kind of turned into that person and I didn't realize what a bad thing that was until I moved to America and I realized that I, I need to stop looking. Here's the thing. See, when, when you grow up and I'm, I'm saying this in a generic kind of way, I think when you grow up and you've had nothing but hardship for one reason or another, I'm not declaring one hardship is worse than any other type. There are lots of different types of hardships. Right. We all go through some shit. Exactly. Life's relative. A hardship. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know, whether that hardship is extreme poverty or bullying or, you know, uh, parental abuse or whatever it may be. Um, you grow up angry and scared. And the only ways to deal with being angry, you know, there are two ways of dealing with being angry and scared. One is, unfortunately, the thing that a lot of people do, which is to commit suicide or to yeah. go down a dark path. And they probably end up in jail or do drugs or whatever. And then the other way to do it is to try and better yourself and lift yourself away from that stuff. I kind of try to do both. You know, I, I kind of tried to better myself and take myself away from that stuff. But the anger and the hurt and the hate for how, for what happened to me never left me. And I felt like I needed to take that out on people when I saw them treating others in the same way that I was treated. And it became almost a job to look for those people. And I terrorized people like that. And I had to stop. I had to find a way of stopping because it was incredibly stressful. And also it just, I walked around with just hate and anger constantly. Well, so like, what, I don't, what does that, what, what was the point that you decided, Hey, this is, or what happened when you just snapped out of it? 
it was when I made the choice um, quite late-ish in my life. Like I moved, I was 34 when I moved to America. And like in my mid-20s, I didn't have any work. I was kind of broke in the UK, living in a small apartment. And it was the closest I'd ever come to taking my life. And something changed in me and I just thought, nope, I've been put here for a reason. I'm not going to waste my life. I wasn't put here on this planet. Now, whatever you want to believe, everyone believes different things regarding God, a higher power, whatever that is. Even atheists believe in something. Yeah. Whatever that is. There is something greater than us. And I was put here for a reason. I don't know what that reason is right now, but I'm pretty sure that reason isn't for me to commit suicide. The reason is for me to learn and grow. And to do this podcast. And to do this podcast. Thank right God. At that moment in time, I thought, I'm going to have to do a podcast in 2020 <laughs> for a guy called Jay. <laughs> and so I have to stay alive for that podcast. Thank you. So, yeah, it just, that was a kind of defining moment for me it turned me around and, and i said i'm gonna i don't i cannot see a path right now but i'm gonna look for it because it's there and that's when i made all these changes in my life that's when i went out of my way to look into researching how to move to america and then i changed all my life sold everything i had to move to america to start a new life so it catalyzed everything and now i'm living a life that god it's it's difficult to think that i nearly never had this life that i have it's crazy, right? I'm living, I'm living the most incredible life, you know, just I have this incredible home with these cats and <laughs> my beautiful partner. What are your cat's names? I know Mercy, well, I, which I, isn't your cat, but. Mercy Cat, yes. Um, yeah, she's my savior, I think. Yeah. Um, but then I have the three guys, the people who is 18, who I wake up with every single day and have done for the last 10 and a half years. 18? Um, he's 18, yes. Oof. Just turned 18. I know. Yeah. And he's still super, you know, he, he still behaves like a kitten. Mm -hmm. He's doing really good. You know, we, he has developing kidney issues, unfortunately. But we're doing our best to keep that under control because we'd like him to stick around a little bit longer. And then we have the two young boys who are both rescues who both of the Mercy has rescued from a set she's been working on. And one is Montezuma, who's a big black furry furball, who is so cute. He basically looks like, have you seen the movie How to Train Your Dragon? I've seen the dragon. Is that, is that what Montezuma looks like? It, Montezuma looks like that dragon. The big but black the with the green, yeah, yes. green eyes? Yeah. Well, his eyes, eyes kind of change color a little bit. They're okay. like white and yellowy, green, yeah. Um, but he kind of reminds us of toothless from how to train your dragon he's just so cute and so intelligent and you know he's our little leprechaun and then we have mandalorian who mercy rescued he was a problem child he had some issues integrating at first this is um, the way but yeah but we we put the effort in and now we cannot imagine our home without him and he has totally fallen in love with his dad and wants to be everywhere that his dad is and purrs every time I touch him. So, yeah, that's that's the family that I 
dreamed I, I wouldn't I could never dream that I have right now. So is Mando with you right now? He isn't actually. I think he's sleeping on my chair in the living room. They're all with their mom in the living room. Damn Mandalorians. Talking to Joseph Gat. Let's talk about kids for a second. So I I'd, <laughs> I'd, I'd seen well, I don't mean, you know. <laughs> we could jump to um let's talk about uh your camp or the camp that you had been to. Um, I couldn't find much about it, but I remember seeing pictures of it with oh, about know, the kids with kids? kids with kids with alopecia. Yeah, exactly with alopecia. Oh, I love those kids. Is that something I you do every year? Kids. If possible, I try and get involved. Yeah, I try and get involved. I've been involved with CAP or Children's Alopecia Project now for I think on for about five years now, and I got involved with them through another friend of mine, who you might know. His name's Anthony Carrigan. Um, another actor who has alopecia and you might know him from, um, I've seen, I think uh, I've seen a photo of you guys together. Yeah. Yeah. He was in Gotham and, uh, he's also in, um, Bill Hader's comedy show. Yeah. I really feel like cool he's been guy. in quite a few things actually. Yeah. And he, he, you know, we, we became friends and he told me about the cap kids and I've been involved ever since, you know, going to camps with the kids acting as a mentor and, um, going to different events and stuff and hanging out with the kids. And, and it's just one of the most beautiful things, these kids. And, and it's all for kids who have alopecia or are suffering with alopecia or have suffered with alopecia and their families. And these kids are wonderful, just wonderful. And I get as much out of it as they do. I think, cause I go there as an inspiration, as a mentor to them, to show them that, you know, one of the most, there are two important things for young kids to know especially kids going through problems like alopecia or whatever those problems are. One is to know they're not alone. Yes. Look up and see someone like them. Yes. They need to know they're not alone in this, that they're not aliens. They're not alone. And the second one is to know that this doesn't stop them having a healthy, happy life. Yes. A successful, productive life. And, if you can show them that or help them learn that by saying, one, you're not alone. There are other people like you of all ages. And two, there are people like you of all ages working successfully out there. And not only working successfully, but working in an industry uh, with regards to myself and Anthony and a couple of other you know, people, working in an industry that is its whole ideology is by judging people based on the way they look. <laughs> Everyone in this industry is judged based on the way they look. Yeah. Whether it be your ethnic look, the color of your skin, your, the type of hair you have or don't have, whether you have tattoos, whether you're fat, skinny, muscular, whatever, you are judged on that. Are you the right visual look we're looking for? Yes. Are you what we're looking for? Do you fit the stereotype or do you fit the social economic stereotype? What is the trendy thing we're looking at right now? Oh, we need young African-American males. We need Asian females. We need muscular white guys with shaved heads or whatever it is. You know, there are different trends that Hollywood goes through on top of the stereotypes. And in such a visually biased industry, or visually judgmental industry to be, I would say I'm successful. And the reason I say I'm successful is I'm not you are. 
like I'm not a major star or a major A-list, but I'm, a, I'm, I'm able to pay the rent and live my life just through my acting work. And I can walk down the street and people recognize me and, you know, I do fan conventions and that kind of thing. So that, I guess, means I've reached a certain level of, of success, I guess. But again, success is relative right. depending on who you are and what your expectations are. But when the little young kids see someone like myself, like one of the best things we did was we had a cap event where we invited, um, we basically booked half of the, um, you know, the Disney movie theater on, in Hollywood. We booked that theater for the, for the cap kids. And we had a special screening of Dumbo for them when it came out. And, you know, the theater was full of all these kids. And then, you know, they, they filled up the other seats with other people because it was one of the first screenings of the movie at the theater. It was either the very first or second screening of the movie. Right. That's a hell of an experience. I, I, yeah. And then I went up on stage and... Were you you or were you in character? People. As no, far as, as me. visual. As okay. me. All right. Yeah. And I went up on stage, introduced the cap kids to everybody and uh, said a little something and then introduced my, you know, myself and introduced the movie. And it was just a really, really special, special moment. Yeah. Being able to do that for them, being able to show them that they can be anything they want to be. Because I never had that when I was that age. You know, when I was that age and my hair was falling out and I had alopecia, nobody really knew what it was. Nobody had a clue. There was no one else that had it. And so all I had was the continued bullying, the continued isolation. The continued me trying to hide it all the time by wearing a ball cap constantly. Yeah. And then my parents who didn't have a clue what to do about it. You know, my mom was just saying, Oh, stop complaining and being miserable, just go to school. You know, she so, <laughs> sounds about right. Uh she Come wasn't on, the mom. greatest. Yeah. She she just was like, like, Yeah, that's just just go to school kind of thing. And then I was experimented on by medical schools and stuff it was it was it was not it was not pleasant so to be able to shine a light or be a light for these kids to me is everything is everything because they need to know and they need to see that this is joe he's our friend and he's on the screen with dumbo you know yeah it's it's shining that light shining a beacon forward for these kids so that they can wake up every morning with hope and happiness I mean, and not feel ostracized because of the fact that they have something that they cannot control. Imagine your 14-year-old self. Imagine yourself in your mid-20s not knowing what to do and, and ready to give it up and then look at you now. You know what I mean? It's just like that climb is something, it's inspiring and it's a true testament of we all go through stuff and it's not to make little of anything anyone's gone through but believe in yourself even if other people don't believe in you because we always have one or two people three four people that either don't believe in us or believe in us even when we don't believe in ourselves to pick us up through those times and there's the things you can accomplish if you just keep going at it going at it let's talk about social media a little bit yeah a couple episodes ago i had one called you care what people think about you and i reference a lot in self-respect, respect for those who have relationships with you and even some of those who have never met. You know, what is your thought on censoring yourself on social media? Because there's there's one group out there that says 
screw it. I'm going to say what I want. This is my page. If you don't like me, unfollow me. You know, and then there's the other person who refuses to post anything. They just kind of linger, creep, and in post well cat videos. You know, where do you think <laughs> your <laughs> where do you think your level of responsibility is being Joseph Gat? And just even if you weren't, you know, even if you're just Joseph Gat, the cat lover who works out at the gym and works at the car wash, you know, separate from who you actually are. Well, here's the thing: I I try to never lie. I try to never lie, and I try to never be hypocritical about anything. And so what I post on my social media is never a lie. It's always me. But the thing is, I'm just judicious about what parts of me I post. You know, like I'll post some personal stuff, but not all. Right. And sometimes I'll make a political comment, but not always, you know, because it would be lovely to be able to go on social media and say whatever the fuck you wanted. It would be so nice to do that. But the problem with that is, like what we talked about previously, is then you're isolating people. And because I, I guess sell is an appropriate word, or to demonstrate myself, th- what I show about myself on social media is my whole self. And it's what a lot of actors do. They show them, themselves as a whole person as much as possible. You know, it's not like I'm a car social media person or I'm a gun social media person or a cat social media person or just a fitness social media person. I'm Joe Gat. And so I have to show the gamut of things that make me who I am because I think that's what people want to see in me. They want to see the whole person. Why is Joe Gat Joe Gat? What does Joe Gat like? What does he dislike? But more, what does he like? Right. You know, he likes cats. He works out. He loves his partner. He loves cars. You know, he, whatever. You know, these are all things that I can post about. Now, what I try and do is obviously some people are not going to like me for all of those things. People will like me for some of those things and not others. So what you try and do is just respect everyone. Because for a start, I would not be who I am without all of those people out there. Hmm. The fact that everyone out there is spending their money on DVDs, Blu-rays, to stream the movies and TV shows, to go to the movie theater, blah, blah, blah. That's what keeps actors working. So actors who turn around and give the middle finger to their fans and say, you know, F you, I don't give a shit what you think about me. This is me. Are kind of dumb. Yeah. Because you're you're abusing, you're being abusive to your moneymaker. So just on a purely economic level, you don't want to do that. But also, do you want to be a dick? (laughs) You know, there are some people who want to be a dick. I can name some names, but I'm not going to. There are some people who you look at their social media and think, wow, you're a dick. And there are other people I know who are dicks who purport themselves to be really lovely, wonderful people. And I also know some other people who come across as dicks, but I know are actually really nice people. They're just really crap on social media. Yeah, you always hear the stories of people who actually meet them. So, you know, person A is, wow, they're they're living the life. They're doing this. They're super nice. And I know so-and-so went up and just tried to say hi, and then they're an inspiration. They didn't ask for anything, and they just kind of politely told them to fuck off. You know, it's just like, that's your first... Yeah and only interaction with that person who could have 
all your posters on their wall. I mean, I don't think people hang posters on walls anymore, but kind of dating myself, I guess, but you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And it's, 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 again, it's something that we talk about all the time, you know, because, you know, even someone at my level, you get people coming up to you in the street, wanting a photograph with you or wanting your autograph at the moment. It's basically everybody wants a freaking selfie with you. Yeah. Right. And it's easy to get upset with people when you're in the middle of doing your own thing, whether it be at the gym or in a restaurant or, you know, whatever. And people that just keep coming up to you and just interrupting you, just can I get a selfie with you? I really loved you in this. I really loved you in that. Can I get a selfie with you? And you're like, I'm just in the middle of having an intimate conversation with my girlfriend or I'm just having a private conversation with my buddy or whatever it is. I mean, there's a line and, and some people just don't understand that. I mean, it's just be decent. Like I could be a super fan. If I see you eating, I'm going to let you eat, you know, but that's just me. I'm not going to jump in front of your table and be like, yo, Hey, what's up, Mr. Gat? Well, it's a weird kind kind of discretion that goes both ways though. Yeah. And that is because it's like, that the person who's coming up and asking you for that selfie isn't thinking about the hundred other people that have done the same on that day. And so they're not considering all of those other options. They think they're the only person, you know, when they come and say, Oh, I'm really sorry to interrupt you. Dinner, but can I just get that one selfie with you? They think they're the only person that's asked that. when actually there were like probably six more in the last half an hour. Um, but then on the other side, on the flip side, all it takes is for me to be rude to one person, and that could be my biggest fan. Right. And then they post stuff, and it's like, you could be nice to 10 people that day, and then it's the 11th person that stops you just as you're getting in your car to drive to the doctors or stops you just as you've had an argument with your partner or stopped you just as you've just whatever and you're really upset and they've just stopped you with a big smile on their face and they're like please i love you can i get yourself can i get a selfie with you and you're like just fuck off <laughs> not in a fucking mood just leave me the fuck alone what is it with that you people is the shit that goes viral and all of a sudden you're an asshole yeah a massive asshole you know and stuff so it's a weird balance that has to be made but again, I tend to try and be gracious about it and be blessed, feel blessed about it because ultimately this is what I have asked for. Yeah, but you can't bat a thousand. Is, you can just try. Yeah, it's just, you know, any actor that goes into this industry expects that even the really, even the ones that are really, really, you know, they're like, I don't want to be a star. I just want to act because I love acting. Okay, that's fine. But you know that to be a successful actor and to be acting is probably going to make you a celebrity of some kind mm, if you're mm -hmm. that busy as an actor, which means you're going to have to deal with celebrity and you're going to have to deal with fans. So it's all part of the same parcel. It's like you cannot really be one without the other. Like many actors would love to be millionaire superstar actors and not have to deal with the fan situation. It's impossible. You cannot do that. One goes with the other. So when you get into the situation, like with me, you know, it's, I got into acting, especially with me being such a very particular look. Sure. Yeah. 
you got to understand that when you do something, people are going to see it and they're going to remember it. And you're not going to be given any peace. And you have to be okay with that. It's not you really. You have to be okay with sitting in a restaurant, having a quiet meal with your partner, with your girlfriend, and then getting texted or, you know, direct messaged later on Instagram saying, oh, we're really sorry to hear that, you know, your cat was, you know, not well the other day. We hope your cat gets better. You know, we were going to come over and say hi, but then we heard what you were talking about. So we left you alone. And you're like, what? Yeah. <laughs> and that actually has happened. Um, so it, you, you kind of take the rough with the smooth. And you have to always just feel blessed about the whole thing. And you just have to figure out your way of handling it. And all actors handle things differently regarding that. Well, celebrities, I should say. You know, Never know. It's not just actors. It's sports stars and, and whatever. Um, so, yeah. Let's talk cars. Cars. I don't have any. You know anything about cars? Real quick before we talk about the cars that Joe has owned, got to tell you guys about dress-up bolts. They have titanium bolts that not only vastly improve the look of your vehicle, but serve as a purpose as well, available to dress up the engine and engine bay. They have kits ready to go for your specific application. If they don't have your ready-made kits, you just supply them with the sizes and they can get the bolts. Go and pay them a visit, browse a little, let them know the Hard Parking Podcast sent you and use code HARDPARKING, one word, and save 10% today. Have a question for you. Steering wheel. Do you, you know, st- <laughs> do you still have your blue S4? Or did you get rid of it? And if you don't have it, like what's your daily? No, my daily is my Shelby. The blue S4, the Audi S4, which I loved, that went to a guy who took it over to New York, which is kind of ironic because that's where it came from. I bought it from a dealership in New Jersey um, initially and had it shipped over to LA. And it went back to the East Coast. And it's not living a happy life on the East Coast. The guy who bought it off me has kind of destroyed it. <laughs> uh, I can only imagine. Yeah, it's kind of sh- I, I've been hearing the stories. Um, but then after that was the Shelby GT350, which was blue as well. Was that that was a GT GT350R, correct, or was it just a 350? No, that was just a 350. Okay, in blue. And then I traded that for the 350R, the gray. Ah, uh, okay. So that's when I met you ish yeah didn't i know you when i had the blue i don't remember that's why i said ish okay i thought i did i kind of feel like i've known you for at least four years four or five years maybe four years i'm just that good of a guy maybe. so compare your shelby your 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 350s you know with your gt500 you know what are the similarities what are some of the differences for you personally i know this isn't a car review for me personally there is nothing that comes close to the 500. Wow. I loved I loved the 350R that I had, and I planned on keeping that longer. But then when I got the allocation that confirmed for my 500, I couldn't keep both cars. Now, there are obviously some differences, like um, you know, the 350R was a manual, it was a stick shift, and the 500 is a seven-speed DCT. But in reality's sake, they drive very similar to each other. The interiors are almost exactly the same. The only difference being the 500 is an extra 260 horsepower. Hmm. It handles as well as the 350. It looks better in my opinion. Yeah, those um, are sharp. I mean, it is one of the most badass cars. I've Definitely badass cars I've ever owned. The only thing that comes close to it for rawness and fun was my Escort Cosworth. 
that I had in the UK before I moved out here. Was that a, um, uh, a late eighties? Mine was a 92. 92. I was thinking yeah. like, like like mid to late eighties to like maybe 92, 93, right? Yeah. I before think they, they were made, them. I think the cozies were made, the, the escort cozies were made from, I think 88 through 95. So I was I actually looking at those maybe three weeks ago. Interestingly enough, like, oh man, I love the escorts. And then I found somebody who made this like a cause, a Euro cause. Yeah. I I love them. I still love it. And it's, I, I want to get another one. I've been looking on bring a trailer and a couple of other places to see, you know, if one shows up, but the problem with having them here is there isn't a support structure here for those cars because they were never built here. Hmm. So, you know, any parts I would need, I'd have to buy from the UK. Um, servicing would be interesting because nobody here understands those Cosworth motors. So that's the only reason I haven't bought one yet, simply because people here just, you know, and it's not going to be the most reliable car. It's, you know, an, an older car. It's like 30 years old. So, right, right. And it's a car that you cannot help but drive hard because it's just designed that way. So it's going to break at some point. Um, and it's finding someone that can actually, like I, I was actually bidding on one on Bring a Trailer. And while I was bidding on the car, I was doing some research and phoning around and stuff. And a few places I phoned either said, yeah, we won't touch that car or, you know, we could give it a look, but we wouldn't be able to make a decision until we actually saw it. So I'm in the middle of bidding on a car that I don't even know that I'd be able to get an oil change done in. So in the end, I just pulled out of the bidding and I was so frustrated because it was such a beautiful car. Ah, it's too bad. Yeah. What's been your like your <clears throat> what's been your like your coolest automotive experience um that you can maybe attribute to your fame possibly playing a role in? So I know you went around thermal, you know, with your GT five hundred. But it's well, like tracking, oh shit. Yeah, tracking is always cool. Cause there's no way to really get a feel of the true performance of your car without taking it on a track. I mean you can get you can drive a car and throw it around a little bit on a good canyon road but to do something safely and properly you you need to be on a track and i was lucky enough you know timing wise that four days after i took delivery of this car um my buddy greg who's one of the execs at sro motorsports invited me to be a guest up at thermal when they were having one of their gt days so i drive out there and I invited a couple of friends out there. And uh, one of those friends is Billy Johnson, who came out with me. He was and, on the uh, last podcast. He was on the last podcast. So you all know who Billy Johnson is. And they better. What a great driver he is. And the fact that he was one of the test drivers and development drivers for my car. And one of the reasons that I actually ended up getting the car, which was an interesting story, but we'll get back to that probably later. But he was there. I went out and then my other buddy came out with his Ferrari Pista and um, it was just an incredible experience. We had four sessions where we could get on the track. So first session was fine. I thought I was doing okay in the car. Second session, Billy came out with me and rode shotgun and proceeded to um, rip me to shreds on what a bad driver I was. Thank you, <laughs> Billy. I would only no, not Billy Johnson. Uh, yeah, exactly. Like, I would only accept that kind of abuse from someone as qualified as Billy Johnson. Right. So he he ripped me to shreds. Like, oh my God. But by the time we got to the last session, 
I was already a few seconds quicker per lap, probably, you know, close to maybe eight seconds quicker per lap. And then we switched out during the last session halfway through and he got in the, in the driver's seat and proceeded to firstly overtake the Ferrari Pista like it was a Prius and then show me exactly how quickly this car could go. And he proceeded to continue showing me um, until he started drifting the car sideways around the track, uh, which he did for about two laps. I mean, the guy is an incredible driver and the ease and relaxation he has while driving a car sideways around a 90 degree turn, a 90 mile an hour turn is quite phenomenal. Isn't that something? Um, I was terrified about my car and about dying, but more about my car. <laughs> right. He's about to break my shit. He's about to break my very expensive shit that I yeah. literally just paid for. But then at the same time, I'm sitting there with a shit eating grin thinking this is amazeballs. This is fucking incredible. This guy is killing it in this car. And he was, and it was just an incredible demonstration, an incredible moment. And I don't know if that will ever be matched. I mean, the only thing that comes close to that was last year at the Long Beach Grand Prix, where I got driven around by Joey Hand, who was also another Le Mans driver. He was actually in the Le Mans winning team that won in 2016. I mean, when I say team, in the Le Mans winning car. Right. Um, I think Billy came third, if I remember rightly, in the GT. But Joey's actually in the winning team. And he gave me a drive around the Long Beach Grand Prix track in a Ford GT. And it oh, wow. was amazing. Like, <laughs> yeah. Just amazing. All right, there is nothing like Le Mans winning. Joey Hand is driving me around the Long Beach Grand Prix track in the car he won Le Mans in. Jumping into the Q&A segment, which is sponsored by the Last Era brand Motorsports Clothing. Celebrate and represent the last era of great cars. We're talking about the 80s and 90s of whatever you think or whatever you think is truly the last era. Follow them on Instagram at Last Era Brand or go to www.lastairbrand.com. Tell them the hardworking podcast sent you. What's a day in the life of Joseph Gat is what? At the moment, during quarantine lockdown or normally? Normally. It's different every day. Uh, basically, but there are certain things that always happen during a day. Gym, trying to get regular food in. And then if I have appointments to get to, they get squeezed into that day. It's normally at least one or two self-tape auditions that have to be done, which will have to be squeezed in. And yeah, it really depends from day to day. There are only a couple of things that have to be done. And, and, and one is obviously gym. You know, I contact my agent and my manager and figure out what's going on for that day. Um, if there's any work stuff that gets taken care of, whether it be emails, you know, other correspondences, if there are any publicity things that need to be done, um, you know, all of that stuff, it's generally work stuff. You know, I, I actually look at social media as work as well. So it I, is. you know, have a portion of my day parceled out to do social media stuff to either post something or respond to other things and respond to comments and questions and stuff. Cause I try to do that when I can. Yeah, and that's really about it. It's kind of, it's a weird, it's a weird, weird thing, you know, with with my life. It's one of those things where it seems like there's very little happening, but the days are busy, just doing generic stuff. Right. Yeah. 
And then when I'm actually working on a job, there's just no time to do anything because you're on set from 7, 8 a.m. through till 7, 9 p.m. at night. Um, Sometimes earlier, right? I mean, like when you were filming some of the other stuff, I think you were getting up like 2 or 3 in the morning. Yeah, it all depends on what you're doing. Like with Thor, for example, which you're probably referring to, you know, because of all the makeup, you know, I was getting in six hours before everyone else was because that's how long it took to do makeup. Actually, on this movie that I just worked on called The Retaliators, uh, which we shot in November in New Jersey, uh, my character had a ton of tattoos because he's former military and he had a ton of tattoos. And that added like an extra two, three hours at the beginning of every day, depending on what scenes we were shooting. If I was shirtless or wearing a tank top or something, we would have to apply all of those tattoos. And that would take a bunch of extra time. So, yeah. Um, but that's, you know, that's part of the fun, I think, for me. That was um, one, I love that stuff. That was one of the submitted questions that I had was how long did it take the makeup artists um, for Grunroth and, and Thor? So were you saying five or six hours? Yeah, yeah. That was about, like, we would, a day would be, our call time would be 3 a.m. We'd be in the chair at 3 a.m. Well, the first thing we would do is get into the main part of the suit. And then they would start applying the makeup. It would take about an hour just to get into the main suit, which was one, two, three, four, five, six pieces, a foam latex full body suit. And the reason it would take so long, it was horribly uncomfortable. (laughs) And it was made worse by the fact that it was foam latex, which meant that it was soaking up your sweat Mm -hmm. all through the day. So by the next morning, They created these weird kind of like contraption hanger things so that they could hang the suits up and they would air a little bit overnight. But you got to realize overnight is like four hours Mm. because by the time we were getting out of makeup and hanging up the suits, it was like 9, 10 p.m. And And then we'd be cooled again at 3 a.m. So the suits barely had time to dry. We barely have slept. And we're trying to get into these skin-tight, body-hugging, soaking wet, freezing cold bodysuits. It was not pleasant to say the least. But then the pleasant part started, which is where we get into the makeup chair. Each one of the Frost Giants had two makeup artists doing, you know, a half of a face each. And I would just fall asleep and then wake up as a Frost Giant. So I would go to sleep in the chair and like four hours later, I'd wake up and most of the makeup would have been completed. Was that physically the toughest role to play because of all this stuff involved and getting ready it was definitely the most tiring because of the length of the days yeah because the days went on so long it wasn't the most physically demanding which was the Um, most physically demanding most physically demanding was probably either banshee or probably i did this low budget thing called stormageddon a few years back with another really good friend of mine who used to be a pro wrestler and we had a ton of fight stuff in it, like tons mm. of, well, we were basically picking each other up and throwing each other around. Yeah. Or rather, I should say, I was picking him up and throwing him around an awful lot. <laughs> um, that was really physically demanding. Stormageddon. And a lot of, yeah, Stormageddon. It's, you know, it's a fun little movie. Sounds like I think a sci-fi movie. It. It's a sci-fi, yeah. it's like a sci-fi B movie. It's, it's, it's fun. I play two characters in it. Um, but some of the stuff is really good in it. Like the fight stuff came out real good. 
you know, and it looks, it, it's, it's, it's got some really cool moments, but I was physically demanding because it was a lot of fight stuff and long fights. And a lot of the fight stuff was choreographed in the moment. We had a couple of great fight choreographers and like literally as they were moving the camera or resetting camera, we'd be choreographing the next part of the fight. It was nutballs. Um, yeah, it sounds. It was a huge amount wow. of fun. Yeah, it was, it was. It was so much fun, and also like the hundred was fun as well because I got, had to learn how to ride a horse, and that was physically demanding and very intense, but hugely rewarding. I literally had to learn how to ride a horse for that. What would you say was the biggest obstacle in Hollywood you had to overcome? Is for Hollywood seeing someone with alopecia as a normal person. That is literally. The ongoing obstacle is for Hollywood to look at someone without eyebrows or eyelashes and consider them that they can still play normal people as opposed to just aliens or bad guys or weirdos or psychos. I actually had, um, there was an article written about me on some web page somewhere, some web sci-fi thing, and it was titled, The Actor Who Could Play Aliens Without Makeup. Oh. Lovely. Yeah. I didn't even know about it. They didn't tag me or tell me about it. The only reason I knew about it was because obviously I have, you know, a Google, um, a Google search check thing for my name. So every time something's posted with my name, pops it, up. It, it, it pops up and tells me. And I saw this thing and I cried for a long time when I saw it. Yeah. And I was like, wow, this is, yeah, just because I don't have eyebrows and eyelashes. So that's that's the constant struggle. That's the constant struggle with alopecia. That's the constant struggle in life with yeah. people with alopecia is not being looked at as people who are sick or weird. Because you're missing because eyebrows and hair on your head. It's it's so weird how something no like eyebrows, that. Yeah, yeah. It's automatically connected with you're sick. Yeah. You know, chemo, cancer. Yeah, I was going to say blah, cancer blah, blah, blah. patient. It's this immediate connection. It doesn't matter. I, you know, I still have people coming up to me thinking, oh, I'm so sorry about what you're going through. All right, what are you talking about? <laughs> I didn't get the role. What's are up? You, are you getting cancer? You, 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 you have cancer, right? And I literally, the last time it happened, I literally looked at the lady and I said, look at me. Do I look like I have cancer? Did you flex? And I was wearing a tank top and stuff. Oh, there like, you go. Do I look like I have cancer? She looked at me and said, I don't understand. I said, how many cancer patients do you know who are in my condition? I have alopecia, darling. I have no hair. I just have no hair. She went, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. I said, it's okay. You're not the only person and you won't be the last. But just realize that the next time you see someone with no eyebrows, it doesn't mean they have cancer. Yeah, it's not definitely a, a common thing for sure. Um, last one, we'll get you out of here on this. When you're doing characters in video games, would you rather just do motion capture or voice acting? I love doing both. I absolutely, I love motion capture, um, but I love the creativity of doing voice acting as well. Like the ideal thing is to be able to do both. I've never actually done full performance capture where I've done both for one character. I've only done, like obviously I've done, you know, Kratos for 10 years from God of War. And I've been his motion capture actor for all of that period of time. But somebody else was doing his his voice. Mm -hmm. um, and now I'm doing much more voice work 
than I am motion capture. And I love doing voice work because it, it is so creative and so much fun. Like sometimes I'll go in, you know, and, and I'll, I'll go into the booth. Like, you know, I'm currently working on two uh, um, video games. One is Elder Scrolls. And uh, the other one you, you've is... Done it before um, I saw Skyrim. Yeah, yeah. I've been, you know, I've been working on that now for about five years, mm-hmm. five, six years, five years. I've got 300 and hours in that also, game, by the way. Yeah, Star Wars The Old Republic, um, where I play one of the main characters in that as well. Now, with Star Wars, I'm only doing the one character, which is Lord Scourge. Mm-hmm. But with Elder Scrolls, I have like five or six main characters that I do. But they also, which is really lovely, is a team also ask me to fill in and just do some other stuff if there's extra time left. They say, "Hey, how how good are you with you know? Can you do this accent?" I said, "Yeah, I can. Can you can you can you, can you do this?" And you know, the last thing I did was I did one of the dragon voices, which was incredible fun. Um, which, by the way, I forgot to uh, ask you to do these an- these Q and A answers in your in your British voice. Oh, you mean talking like this? Maybe, maybe. Uh, yeah, no. The the, the last the, the last time I went in for uh, had a a voice session for Elder Scrolls was about I don't know about six weeks ago, just before the lockdown, and um, they asked me to do. They asked me. See, it's really difficult because I have to think about doing <laughs> going back and forth. My actual natural <laughs> accent. You know what's really weird is like in Elder Scrolls, they want me to be British for a lot of the characters. And when I first went to the booth to start working, I have to mentally get myself back into speaking with a British accent. Because otherwise, naturally, my my accent, my voice comes out, as you can hear, it's very mid-Atlantic. Right. It's very mixed. Um, and that comes from me going right to the very beginning, assimilating, making life easy for myself as an actor. And as a human being, you come to America, you start, you know, talking with an American accent or at least saying the words in a way that an American would understand so that you don't have to keep hearing what, what, what? I don't understand what like fuck's sake. Just say it with a fucking American accent. Then. I said water, goddammit. Yes, it's fucking water. Um, so, so yeah, it just goes back to that. It's weird because speaking with my British accent now is harder than speaking with an American accent. Now, you know, automatically when I read a script, I read it with an American accent. It just, I've been here so long, it's just embedded in me now. It's the strangest thing. Yeah, that's funny. I really wish we could talk for a much, much longer. This has been awesome. Hopefully we can do it again. I want to thank you big time for coming on the Hard Parking Podcast. So people can get a hold of you where you're not hard to find, Joseph Gatt. Yeah, yeah, Joseph Gatt official. Yeah, I'm neat. Look for the check mark. There are lots of fakes out there. <laughs> oh, yeah, you had that happen the other day. Uh, but yeah, man, thanks for coming through. Thank you so much. No, it's been a huge, huge ton of fun. I mean, you and I could probably talk for hours and hours and hours. I know. That's the danger of this. <laughs> now, now you've got to go away and cut all this together somehow and make some sense of it. Hey, I, I don't have anything else going on right now, so all I have is time. <laughs> hey, you better be careful. Make the most of it before I get in my car and drive out to Arizona and find you. All right, man. Thanks. All right. You take it easy, brother. You too. I want to thank Joseph Gatt, actor Joseph Gatt, for joining the show today. You can follow him on Instagram at Joseph Gatt Official. 
And that Instagram address for this show is sponsored by NSX Channel, your number one source for NSX content on Instagram, whether it's bone stock or heavily modified. Check him out, Joseph Gat Official. You can also check him out on Facebook, Joseph Gat, or follow his IMDb page. He's not hard to find, I can promise you that. This has been the Hard Parking Podcast, where you come for the stories and guests and stay for the nonsense. Special thanks to the sponsors, Talk Mobile, Last Era Brand, DressUpBulls.com, NSX Channel, and Higher Quality Detail. Follow me on Instagram at NA2NSX or J underscore Travels. That's J-H-A-E. We also have a Teespring page, so now you can buy a Hard Parking Podcast shirt. You can buy a coffee mug. Finally opened up YouTube channel, so go and check for Hard Parking Podcast, or you might have to search for my name, Jay Finning spelling in the description of the show you can also support this show if you really like it a lot which hopefully you do for as little as 99 cents a month up to 10 dollars a month there should be a link at the bottom of the show description for this episode special thanks to the passion hi-fi for the tunes that i've been using if you have any questions go ahead and email hardparkingpodcast at gmail.com last but not least i want to thank you guys the listeners obviously united states but we have people coming in from japan Canada, the UK, Philippines, Ireland, Germany, Vietnam, Mexico, France, Uganda, Finland, Bangladesh, St. Lucia, and Pakistan. Thank you all for listening to the show. Tell all your friends about it. Talk to you next week. If you haven't had an opportunity to go back and check the bonus episodes, three down, two more to go, which cover ESPN's The Last Dance documentary of the 1997-1998 Chicago Bulls. Although really, it's just about Michael Jordan. Take care of yourself out there. The world is in a crazy place. We can do this. So let's do this. Let's grow this thing together.